You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and with me today is Dr. John Guyton, Associate Professor of Medicine and Assistant Professor of Pathology of the Division of Medicine, Endocrinology, and Metabolism at Duke University School of Medicine. Our discussion today will focus on HPS2 Thrive data and results, which was the treatment of HDL to reduce the incidence of vascular events study. And as I'm sure most of the audience knows, this was a study comparing statin alone versus statin plus niacin in a large group of patients. So, uh, John, thanks very much for taking the time to, uh, to be here today on Lipid Luminations. I'm glad to be here. So, obviously, uh, the use of niacin in dyslipidemia is not a new therapy. And it seems like in the last year and a half or so, it's become much more controversial. So tell us a little bit about the history of niacin and what the data showed up until these most recent two trials. The use of niacin began in 1955 uh, when niacin was shown to lower cholesterol. And within 20 years, a very good randomized clinical trial had been published called the Coronary Drug Project that showed that in men who had had previous myocardial infarction, niacin reduced the incidence of recurrent myocardial infarction by about 26%, also reduced cerebrovascular events. That was a well-done trial, and more than 900 men took niacin, uh, about 2,000 men in the placebo group, and then there were some other groups in the trial that took other medications that didn't work. Since that time, there have been three other studies that showed that niacin reduced cardiovascular events, and uh, those were smaller studies. In those smaller studies, the niacin was always used in combination with something else. It could be used with a fibrate. It could be used with a bile acid sequestrant. It could be used with a statin, but in each case, the group receiving the niacin in combination with something else had reduced cardiovascular events. And that's where the story stood until about 2005 or so. Uh, Then we had not too much going on with regard to cardiovascular events, but the last two trials, AIM High and HPS2 Thrive, showed no additional benefit in the niacin-treated group compared to the group receiving statin alone. Yeah, so that was very interesting, especially because HPS2 Thrive, which was a much larger study, looked like there might be some harm from the niacin. And I wanted to ask you um, about the study design and whether or not the fact that patients that were in the statin-treated group or the statin-plus niacin group generally had LDL and non-HDL at target. So do you think these were just very well-treated patients? I'm going to have you start by talking a little bit about the AIM High and HPS2 Thrive studies and what they were, and then uh, your comments on the results. Well, the patients in AIM High and HPS2 Thrive in the group not receiving niacin, so they were receiving placebo instead of niacin, but they were all receiving statin and often receiving azetamibe as well to get their LDL down, and they got their LDL down right around 70 milligrams per deciliter on average. So these were well-treated patients. And I guess the usual perception of AIM High and HPS2 Thrive has been that if you 
treat patients very well and get their LDL down to a very low level, you've done the job. Niacin doesn't do any, can't do anything more and can't benefit those patients uh, any further. It's interesting, John, because in AIM High, there were very few patients that would have needed additional treatment based on ATP3 because uh, the vast majority of them were at their LDL and their non-HDL targets. And uh, I'm not sure about HPS2 Thrive because they haven't they haven't shown any of the subgroup analysis. I think that was comparable, uh, but I think I think one must remember that this is not about reaching the targets in ATP3 or uh, now we have the the new guidelines which says just says give them a statin. But it was about extending those guidelines and and asking the question, can you do more? by raising HDL cholesterol with the niacin. So it was, it was an attempt uh, to, uh, to add to the guidelines and use niacin to improve reverse cholesterol transport uh, in the main. And it seemed like, according to uh, the companies that made the commercial type of niacin, uh, long, extended release niacin, that a large number of cardiologists were using it to raise isolated low HDL after they were on a statin to get their LDL controlled. So in that sense, it was a pertinent question and a pertinent patient population. You bet. So the results were disappointing, didn't show any benefit, and an HPS2 Thrive showed some harm, correct? Well, HPS2 Thrive showed showed what we, uh, a lot of things we already knew about and a couple of things we had not suspected. HPS2 Thrive showed that uh, there is a little bit of an increase in the tendency to develop diabetes, or at least the tendency to, to get a new diagnosis of diabetes. That was one thing. We've known that niacin raises glucose levels. One of the things that was new was an increased incidence of infections in the niacin-treated group. And a third thing that was new was an increase uh, in uh, in bleeding episodes, mainly GI bleeding. Uh, the bleeding endpoint did include CNS bleeding, but the CNS bleeding, the uh, hemorrhagic stroke, uh, is what that would be. Uh, just, just it was not as much of an effect as as what you saw with the GI bleeding. Now. In HPS2 Thrive, there was an additional drug, laropiprint, which is a prostaglandin receptor inhibitor. And the potential role of the prostaglandin receptor inhibitor in some of these effects is is uh, is up to question. I know you've talked to me a little bit about uh, the fact that uh, there was no benefit, and, and I know you've been a believer in the potential benefits of niacin. So you talk about this possible physiologic flaw that might explain what's going on with niacin. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what that physiologic flaw is and uh, how it might have affected the results of the trial, in your opinion? Besides the fact that the statins were used and the LDL went down to very low levels, the potential physiologic flaw is that these two trials were the first ones looking at cardiovascular events that use niacin at bedtime. Now, the key thing is to understand that niacin has some other effects besides the effects 
on the uh, HDL cholesterol and besides the effects, it also has effects on LDL cholesterol and lowering LDL particle numbers, lowering lipoprotein little a. So we, we're going to put all the lipoprotein effects over on one side. And there are some non-lipoprotein effects. Niacin sharply reduces free fatty acid levels in the circulating plasma. It blocks the release of fatty acids from the gas tank of the body, which is the adipose tissue. So your fuel supply, if you take niacin at bedtime, your fuel supply is markedly limited. And we think that that, that may produce some metabolic perturbations that add new cardiovascular events to the patient taking niacin at bedtime. Previously, niacin had always been given at mealtimes, and the fuel supply at mealtimes is coming from your intestine. There is no block in the fuel supply, and therefore there is no, at mealtimes, there's no what we call a counter-regulatory or a stress hormone response, including catecholamines, epinephrine and norepinephrine, that may potentially add to cardiovascular events by giving niacin at the wrong time of day. That's probably the most important part of the hypothesis that I would present at this time that says these latest trials really don't tell us the story about what niacin can do because the niacin was being given in a, you might say, unphysiologic manner or you might say we just didn't anticipate the altered physiology that potentially is there and, and really does appear to be there because we know what happens to the fatty acid levels when you give niacin at bedtime. They drop precipitously, more than 60%. They stay down for one to two hours, and then the fatty acid levels come back and they overshoot, which is also evidence for a stress hormone response. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and today I'm speaking with Dr. John Guyton from Duke University Medical Center. So, John, you've made some very interesting hypothetical statements. Any evidence to back up this perturbation as a risk factor for coronary disease? Alan, let's look at the paradox that we have with niacin. First, we have four previous trials with mealtime niacin where niacin appeared to be reducing cardiovascular events. You can say that the difference is that niacin is being given in, with a statin in the recent trials and the LDL levels are low. But in fact, one of those earlier trials, niacin was also being given with a statin, with simvastatin, and the LDL levels were low. Secondly, and I haven't, I haven't mentioned this before, even when you give niacin at bedtime, the lesions get better. Uh, you're well aware of the work of Alan Taylor, and there's, uh, there's work from a guy named Robin Chowdhury at Oxford University who have shown the carotid atherosclerosis lesions actually regressing and getting smaller with niacin added to statin therapy, LDL levels all very low in both groups, but the addition of niacin was shrinking the lesions. And finally, in the AIM High study, we find that the niacin it puts a uh, puts a disconnect between lipoprotein levels and cardiovascular events. That is, in the placebo group in AIM High, we found 
that there's even though the LDL level is 68 milligrams per deciliter on average, if the LDL level is even lower, you have fewer events. If the LDL in the course of the trial is higher, say around 100 milligrams per deciliter, you have more events. In the niacin group, that does that's not true at all. In the niacin group, the patients achieving an LDL level of 30 had the same number of events as the patients achieving an LDL level of 100. This points toward non-lipoprotein effects of niacin. There's a disconnect that niacin affords that makes us think of the non-lipoprotein effects, such as the block in the free fatty acid release, this drop in the free fatty acid levels. Niacin also has some good non-lipoprotein effects in the sense that niacin suppresses inflammation in macrophages and improves cholesterol efflux in macrophages. And these would be very good effects that match up very nicely with the fact that the lesions improve when you put people on niacin. So, John, obviously you're still a proponent of niacin with uh, other mechanisms besides just uh, affecting lipids. I'm, I, I am. I am. I'm keeping my patients on niacin. I have um, over 50 patients who've taken niacin with statins for more than 10 years with very, very few cardiovascular events. I, I need to go back and, and, you know, just enumerate them, follow them through, uh, find those patients who have left the clinic perhaps and, and find out what happened to them. But of the patients who are, who are following right along with me, we, we just about have an absence of recurrent events. Uh, in patients treated with niacin and statin. Now, that's not comparable to randomized clinical trials. I understand that. But I've had such good luck with this combination treatment of statin plus niacin. I'm continuing to use it with an emphasis on giving the niacin at mealtime, however, because that matches up with the earlier trials where niacin really seemed to work very, very well. Okay, so that's un- I think there are many people out there who feel like you do and have strong feelings about this, and they were shocked uh, by the results of these two large trials, just as we were when the HERS study showed that postmenopausal estrogen was not a great preventer for coronary disease. But with that said, in your clinical judgment, which patients should have niacin added to their moderate or high-dose statin? Well, Clearly, I think the patients who are not getting their LDL or their non-HDL cholesterol down enough, even with the statin treatment, or the patients who are intolerant to statins, we can use niacin just to lower the LDL and also the LDL particle concentration or the ApoB levels. Secondly, I do think there is a role for using niacin for the benefits that I think are there. I'm doing this in my practice. I'm giving the niacin at mealtimes. I'm preferring to use the regular immediate release niacin given with breakfast and supper, but in some patients I'm using the extended release niacin, and I prefer to give it at supper time instead of bedtime. Well, John, I really appreciate your insights, and I think this is another issue that will be sorted out over time um, as that our clinical experience seems to be somewhat different than what these particular randomized trials showed. And, of course, uh, all these patients were treated to LDL down to 70, and uh, that's not what we see often in practice. So 
the the question of whether adding niacin, for example, to get adequate LDL lowering gives you the additional benefit was not answered by these studies, and I, I think you pointed that out. Yeah, we've got some work to do. I'm Dr. Alan Brown. You've been listening to Lipid Lumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association on ReachMD. Please be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com slash lipids, featuring podcasts of this and other series. Thank you for listening, and Dr. Guyton, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, sir.